0: Hello, and welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast, Episode 5. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. I'm a veterinarian and a professor here at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. This week, my guest is Dr. Barry Blakely, who is a veterinary toxicologist and a faculty member here at the University of Saskatchewan. He has a wealth of experience on deficiencies and toxicities, and today we're going to pick his brain about copper deficiency in cattle. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Blakely. It's great to have you here. Thank you for doing this. Uh, No problem. Maybe we can start by having you uh, tell our audience a little bit about your background and your job, what you do as a veterinary toxicologist every day.
1: Um, Well, I'm a veterinarian. I also have graduate training, master's and PhD in uh, toxicology with emphasis on immunotoxicology, which is the effects of chemicals or deficiencies on immune function, which may be part of the discussion here on a daily basis I obviously teach veterinary students but I in addition one of my main focuses of my position is to interact with prairie diagnostic services and provide consultation and interpretation of nutritional and toxicological problems which tend to be uh, primarily livestock in nature and in addition uh, veterinarians and also producers do phone me on a regular basis and I do Hundreds of consults on a yearly basis, and so if you have an issue and you and need some outside opinion, I'm more than willing to do that
0: yeah that that keeps you very busy and I'm often one of those people that's bothering you with our disease investigation unit as well, or sometimes we get the same phone call from from the same person too yes, yeah, um, well, our topic for this week is copper deficiency, and maybe before we get started on, on the issues around that, maybe we should step back and talk about why copper is such an essential trace mineral for animals and, and what, what do they need that for?
1: Yeah, copper is uh, obviously is involved in a number of functions in the body, whether it's a cow or a person or whatever. And uh, just to give you some examples and this hardly creates problems in diagnosis because it affects many different systems so it's not just one system so it uh, it, it's complex but for example red blood cells it causes anemia it's involved in red blood cell synthesis it affects the nervous system some of the animals depending on the degree of copper deficiency may exhibit neurologic signs enzootic ataxia is an example of that in see it in sheep primarily but uh, it affects the bone. It affects phosphorus metabolism. It affects connective tissue, and I'll say, in general, I'll say the heart, just as an example. But the one that most producers are interested in is reproduction. It has a big impact on reproduction, and obviously, the developing fetus uh, does require a lot of copper to develop properly. So, many systems are affected.
0: Right, and and that can uh, then show itself up as a whole bunch of different clinical signs and clinical uh disease syndromes but let's let's keep stepping back a little bit here and and i know from some of the research that we've done in our canadian cow calf surveillance network that copper deficiency is by far and away one of the most common deficiencies that we see in beef cattle what's your perspective on how common a problem it is
1: well we see uh in the prairie diagnostic services in the lab we see copper deficiency problems um almost daily Uh, this week as an example i wouldn't say this is the time we see the most or whatever but there's one day this week we had six different herds in different parts of western canada affected that's a lot you translate that over the course of a year you're in the thousands so it's very common and it's by far the most common some of the people say well how about selenium Uh, it's well down the list as compared to copper and uh, so forth so it's very common and economic impact of that very significant
0: yes definitely we've surveyed herds across across all of Canada and and by far and away it's the most common deficiency that we see and most herds have a few animals deficient for sure and some herds have virtually all of them deficient why is it so common how does copper deficiency actually occur
1: uh it may partly depend on the province that you are in for example, I'll start with Manitoba, which has very high copper, and normal copper I'll say in the feed, but the molybdenum in the feed is very high and the copper and molybdenum interact creating a problem. So very common in Manitoba. Alberta and Saskatchewan, I will say the I'll say the feed is marginal or low. It's not deficient. And therefore if there's a another complicating factor or two, uh, we will see it here. And in BC some of the areas there were heavily involved in mining, and they've left the mine site, and they now graze cattle on the area. And the molybdenum, again, is a mining product or byproduct of the industry. I remember one case out of BC we saw a number of years ago. I've never seen molybdenum concentrations that high in tissues in my life, and the cattle showed, I'll say, very obvious signs of copper deficiency so high molybdenum results in copper deficiency and in that case in bc uh, they really could not even graze the cattle on that field for under any circumstances they could not manage it even though the pasture was lush and green it was loaded with molybdenum so it's a the problem is is all across western canada and i'll say worldwide too but uh, we have all the wrong or right circumstances for it to develop
0: and they often talk about primary versus secondary copper deficiency. So primary would be just there's not enough copper in the diet, but secondary would be something else is tying it up. And so one of those, one of those issues is molybdenum. We have to have the right copper molybdenum ratio. What, what's that sort of ratio? What should that be?
1: Well, just to expand upon that a little bit, really what you're looking at is an imbalance. The copper molybdenum is imbalanced. In, in a normal feed for cattle, that ratio should be about 6 to 10 to 1. And if it's if the copper-molybdenum ratio is below 2 to 1, you're going to have problems. And if it's above 15 to 1, you're going to have copper toxicity. So again, if you overdo it, you may have a problem. And uh, so the fact that there's an interaction here, and I would suggest the copper-molybdenum interaction, biologically, is one of the strongest that I've ever encountered. So it's not just academic consideration it's a it's biologically a real thing uh, the other comment i'd make depending on the degree of deficiency or uh, of uh, the uh, i'll say the copper in the diet or the excess on the molybdenum the onset could be gradual and it's, uh, the gradual i'll say depending on the how far it's out of out of uh, balance it may take years for that to happen or months and so forth So that really compensates, oh, my cattle are doing fine, and then all of a sudden the problem breaks out. Uh, To to mask that, uh, they change feed every year potentially, and so one year it's poor, next year it's better, so it comes and goes. So you may not have a problem for a few years, and all of a sudden you have a disaster. The other complication to that story with the secondary uh, copper deficiency in Western Canada is sulfates. Sulfates in the water, which is the main culprit. It's more biologically available in the water as there are sulfates in the feed as well, but it's probably not as significant. Uh, but the last few years when all the sloughs and dugouts were drying up, uh, the sulfates remain and the concentration increases and the cattle in the hot weather drink more water, take in more sulfate. And they ultimately, uh, long term, the sulfate interferes with actually copper and also selenium as well. The interaction there is not as strong as it is with the uh, the molybdenum situation, but it does happen. And there are some cases when we are looking at mineral profiles in animals and the copper is low, I, again, look at the molybdenum and so forth. Is that the problem, or is it primary, or is it secondary? So there's a number of uh, reasons for analyzing the feed and and to get it to understand why is the problem occurring.
0: Yeah, we've identified a number of those Secondary copper deficiencies where where there's high sulfates in the water and and probably in some of those grazing situations, the sulfates are pretty high in the in the plants as well around those mm-hmm. water sources as well so uh, it there may be a significant feed effect there as well in some of those cases so what might be some of the clinical signs that they might see if they have an animal with, let's, let's start with sort of mild to moderate copper deficiency. They're not, they're not really severe yet, but they've got significant uh, deficiencies in copper. What, what might you see in those animals?
1: Yeah, I think as we mentioned before, it affects a number of different organ systems and so forth. So if uh, if you look over the fence and uh, the producer thinks, well, I think, I wonder if I have a copper problem. Typically, what you would see first is an unthrifty animal. They're just not gaining weight the way they should. Quite often, I see diarrhea in those animals, and you say, well, it must be an infection. Well, they look at the infection, and there's none there. <clears throat> so why have they got diarrhea? And there's a disease called peat scours that not happened in Canada, but in Europe, where that's what they see. The animals have diarrhea as a presenting complaint. And neurologically, the odd one might show ataxia or whatever not so common the lameness again it takes a higher concentration and it will say a problem to occur uh, but the one that really stands out I think is infertility and that's what they say oh it's just the calf crop is half what it should be or whatever why is it and of course it could be infectious it could be a number of causes but copper is I've seen a number where that was the presenting complaint that's all they said and checked the copper and there it is they supplemented and, and the problem disappeared the other one that sometimes is a presenting complaint, and that, and this is getting closer to my research area, uh, copper deficiency does cause immunosuppression, and they may have, well, they could have a GI infection, or they may have pneumonias, and the odd one has it. Obviously, the more severe the uh, suppression, if you want to call it, then more animals may be affected. Uh, the other one that I do see on occasion is semen quality uh and a lot of the uh, bull uh, operations uh, do supplement with copper and I'll say in some cases maybe overdo it. And The other very general comment I would make is the hair coat. There's hair coat changes in some of these animals as well. And uh, just to give you an example, a, a nice black Angus animal has a tinge of red to its hair coat. It's not a, a red Angus, it's a, a black Angus. And so those signs and obviously the, you may only have one or two animals affected well out of say a hundred well it's because some have a higher copper status some are lower the heifers and the younger animals tend to show the signs before the old cows and so forth so that's and so there's an age factor creeping into the story but those are typically what we see and when I see a history from a veterinarian or if I talk to a producer and they describe these I suggest I think we should look at the copper
0: how about parasites? Do we do we see more parasites in those copper-deficient animals?
1: That's a good question. I don't know if I know the answer to that. I know in some cases the, uh, uh, the, the immune system, uh, sometimes the parasite load is less. But in some cases, I'll say with iron, the parasite is literally sucking iron out of the animal as well. Uh, that I don't think is true with copper exactly. But uh, uh, parasites, I've seen more issues with that in sheep some of the sheep parasites but uh, yes depending uh, on the operation uh in theory yes and uh i don't know how well that's documented yeah
0: maybe not i i i do remember looking at a bison herd with pretty significant copper deficiency where the parasite levels were also high they were having troubles with with some internal parasites on top of things but uh, uh not sure i've seen that in maybe partly
1: so the intense it, nature of the operation. If you've got yes. a 10 cattle on 500 acres, I don't think you'll have a parasite right. problem. If you've got yeah. them on one acre, uh, you probably will.
0: <laughs> yeah, good point. So what about if we had more severe copper deficiencies? So obviously those sort of mild to moderate ones, we could confuse that with lots of different things. It, it, it could be other causes. But if we see the really severe animals, what, what do they look like?
1: Uh, the severe animals, and I'll say unfortunately... 2021 and around that vintage uh, there was a major major feed shortage in western canada and producers had no choice but to feed straw or slew grass like those are not good feed for cattle under any circumstances but they had no choice and after prolonged feeding of those types of feed there there was another problem that developed called uh, i'll say it's falling disease Falling disease is exactly what it says. The animals fall down. The Typical history we got on a number of these animals. Uh, one or two animals fell down, and a day or two later, they dropped dead. And the veterinarians, our, our producers, went out and treated these animals and said, well, it's milk fever, so they gave them calcium or whatever. And they did not respond. They stayed down, and they just died. The other piece of history that was interesting in those cases was, usually it was in the winter when the feed is even worse and they were heavy in calf. And the calf is draining a little copper out of the animals as well. And it causes heart damage in these animals in particular. And the, they go down because the heart is not functioning properly. And then a day later, they drop dead of, I'll say, a heart attack. And at that point, uh, uh, the owner gets concerned. And when the veterinarian does a, an autopsy on these animals, You don't see much. If you really look closely, you may see some heart damage under a microscope, but usually not much. Uh, But invariably when we run those uh, in the lab, the copper is about one-tenth what it should be and so forth. So it's a, and I can recall one day about this time last year where we had nine herds in Western Canada. This was the diagnosis in one day, and they were coming in every, literally every day. So that's a problem we have not seen before. It's a bigger problem in countries like Australia and so forth. Not as big a problem here, but if we continue to feed really poor quality feed over an extended period of time, we are going to see more of this. And I think we had one or two cases of that this week. But uh, uh, So that one is a bit more obvious, and it, it doesn't uh, fit with the classical description of copper deficiency. It is a it's a heart attack type problem, a heart problem. Uh, but I think we're seeing more and more of that. And uh, But uh, keep in mind in these vague syndromes where infertility and so forth, you know, keep in mind the mycotoxins and I'll say selenium toxicity and infectious disease. Uh, uh, it's important to do a, a complete evaluation and not just immediately say, well, it must be copper, let's go for it. Uh, we'll be wrong a few times.
0: Yeah, so that that leads me to my next question. If a producer wants to assess his animals for copper levels, what's the best way of doing that? How, how do you figure out if you really have a deficiency in your herd or not?
1: Uh, that's a, I get that question a lot. <laughs> and there's a number of reasons for that. And I'll answer that maybe in a slightly different way. Uh, let's say uh, uh, you have a bucket of water. And in the bottom of that bucket, there's a little hole. And what is dripping out of that hole is the copper from the uh, uh, the liver going into the animal. And the liver is the buffer organ for the copper. In other words, if you take in too much copper, it's stored in the liver. So the bucket is the storage tank. And when the bucket is half full, there's not a big problem. As the bucket starts to go down, the water pressure drops and the amount of copper flowing out of the bottom of the bucket goes down. And when, of course, when the Bucket is empty, the flow stops, and that's where you will have big problems. So I equate it to the bucket of water. So to answer the question on what are we sampling, ideally you should sample the the liver, but that's a bit of a problem in some herds because you've got to do liver biopsies and so forth. That's rather invasive and. Uh, it's a scale it's and so forth. Also, the sample size is really small. We have a problem in the lab doing some of those samples, but that's, that's another issue. But in theory, it's the best sample. We can see is the ten, is the bucket half full or is it three quarters full or is it right full? If it's right full, you, carefully you're on the brink of toxicity. So the uh, flip side is we can do blood and obviously the blood is a reflection of the liver and as the liver drops, the blood will begin to drop but it drops not at the same rate but once the liver is basically empty then it it plummets so in a herd evaluation uh, some are closer to empty than others and you will see a marked deficiency others are look pretty normal when you're evaluating these you need to look at the herd not the individual individual okay that one's got copper deficiency but you need to treat the animals as a herd and so forth and if they're all in the same feed that's the case uh, the other area you may see some differences is the heifers versus the uh, the older cows and so forth but so practically the blood and we can do it on the whole blood we can do it on the plasma or the serum it doesn't matter we get reasonably good numbers on all of them it's not a difficult assay to do and we run it in conjunction with 20 uh, uh, other metals and so forth so you get a bigger picture and also in the for example if the uh, copper in some of the animals is a little bit low others it's normal uh, the next thing I look at is the molybdenum is it high or low and that tells me is it primary or secondary or in fact if the uh, molybdenum is really low and the copper is low it's a straight primary problem so if both are good uh, the blood samples serum or whatever are easier to take and maybe not quite as useful but in many cases practically are the best approach and I would say 80% of the samples we get right now are serum or plasma or whatever. There's a few specialist people in Western Canada that typically do that and promote that and so forth, but uh, it's 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 a, a tricky one to do, and we've had the odd time where the sample uh, actually is not liver. It's a piece of lung, which isn't ideal. We can analyze it, and I can tell as soon as we analyze it, it's not liver, <laughs> But the sample size with a needle, it's a 14-gauge needle, is very small and um, requires a bit of talent. And I know some practitioners do it routinely and others uh, don't want to go there. And I'm sympathetic with both sides.
0: Yes, and and we've been doing a lot of liver biopsies for a couple of uh, projects I've been working with Dr. Penner and animal science on and... And we haven't killed anything yet, so it seems to be relatively safe. But And we're using a much larger trocar than many veterinary practitioners would do. But it's really not, not that difficult once you've done a few to uh, do that. But the challenge is getting enough liver for the lab to actually analyze it. One of the things that I've seen some veterinarians do, and it's not my idea, but I think it's a, probably not a bad one, is that if you have an animal die for unrelated reasons, maybe a bloat or something that's not a long-term infectious disease, they'll ask for routine liver biopsies on those, you know, if it's a young calf or a mature cow or a heifer or something like that uh they'll ask for a liver sample to be run at the lab when they send w- when they send some tissues in just to sort of say where are we in our herd you know do, are they are they deficient or are they are they not deficient based on the liver
1: I, I encourage that in many cases uh, there is an opportunity to get a really good assessment uh it's obviously not a herd sample but it's a uh, a good sample and uh, there's a number of people every time they may butcher one just for consumption I said well send in a chunk of liver and we will see what's there and uh, because the copper and some of the other MLs change so gradually you can't supplement today and check tomorrow you need to wait months and that's an opportunity to do that
0: yeah and, and we found that the blood test is somewhat useful too uh, the I guess if the blood is deficient, we know they really are deficient. Yes, yes. That's that's the case, that the liver is starting to empty and, and now the blood is showing deficiency. If the blood's not deficient, we're not really sure what status right. the liver is at. So that's kind of how that works. Um, we've seen uh, some situations, and you mentioned it earlier about bulls, we've seen some situations where too much of a good thing can cause serious consequences. We can overdo it with copper. Uh, And you've seen several cases of copper toxicity presented to the lab over the years. How did those happen?
1: Well, I can think of a number of, I'll call it famous cases or whatever, where we diagnosed copper deficiency in a herd of cattle, and they changed the supplementation. I'm not sure who did or what, but they put too much in the diet. And it took 14 months in one case for the animals to go from deficient to toxic. And they didn't, in in the intermediate, uh, the animals appear fine, they do well, but once that bucket is full, uh, the explosion happens and the copper flows into the blood and causes major problems. Uh, We see that, uh, actually where I see it the most is in bison, actually. And it's maybe because we don't have a real good feel for their copper molybdenum status and how to interpret that, or maybe it's a harder animal to sample from. Uh, And we we typically see, I'd say, two or three every year that we have diagnosed deficiency, and a year or so later, now we see the opposite problem and so forth. So it's common, and uh, that's where you need to involve, both the veterinarian and the nutritionist, and analyzing feed and analyzing periodically liver samples when you can get it. That's the best indication. Is the bucket half full or three-quarters full or right full? And if it's right full... Lug out
0: (laughs) yeah for sure we we've talked about feed testing on the podcast and how important that is but the one thing i always emphasize with copper is it's so hard to sort out all those interactions based on the feed tests it may give you some some idea of what you need to do if you have high sulfates or or high molybdenum but but sometimes sampling the animals is the best approach for sort of seeing where you are
1: a number of I'll say producer say, well, let's just check the feed. Then we don't have to do one sample. We don't have to do 10 cows or 20 cows. And I said, well, the problem with the feed analysis, which uh, Dr. Campbell just alluded to, I want to know what's in the animal. Not, I don't want to speculate from the feed that it's high or low because sulfates, and or whatever, the copper looks normal. Therefore, it shouldn't be a problem. Well, you have a copper problem, so check the animal out. I always start with the animal. And if we do, the chances of solving the problem increase dramatically. So start with the animal. You can do the feed as a supplement or whatever, but I would do the uh, the liver or the blood or whatever. It depends on the on the element a bit. The other comment I'd make on that is, is our that when we do the analysis in the liver or the blood, we can do a essential element analysis, or we can do all of the metals. And I encourage the veterinarians to submit and do the all metal one. It's, a little bit more pricey, but not much. And it tells us the interactions, if they're present or not. It tells a much better story. And I would say over the last few years that more veterinarians are doing the the multi-element analysis, lead and everything, not just the copper and the molybdenum and so forth. The other comment I would make on the feed analysis Most of the feed labs do copper and zinc and so forth. Molybdenum is not one of the ones they typically
0: do. Oh, interesting.
1: Which is unfortunate because when I see a problem, I say, well, where's the molybdenum? Well, we didn't do that, so we will run it. And the liver backs up saying that's the one that's the problem. Right. The other issue with that politically, if you look in the uh, FEEDS Act, both in Canada and the U.S., molybdenum isn't an essential element that's considered in that. Therefore, it's off the radar if you want to put it that way. So that's a something that should be changed and so forth. But is it's not a difficult analysis, but it's just not done. Not required, we'll say, by legislation. Yeah. So I I that's one little thing I would change. But, uh, yeah.
0: Well and, and there's lots of value to feed testing for, for other reasons. So we we feed test for ergots and mycotoxins and we feed test for uh, energy and protein. But, but sometimes for some of those trace minerals, going to the animal helps more. Uh, going back to copper toxicity, just for a minute, what does that look like clinically? Or how do we diagnose it? What, what do you see there?
1: Well, unlike the copper deficiency, where it's a kind of a chronic smoldering problem, copper toxicity, what typically the presenting complaint is, I've got a dead cow. And, well, it was fine yesterday. In fact, it may have been eating literally up till yesterday, and today it's dead. And so the uh, uh, you may have others on the brink of disaster, and what we see in the others uh, is usually red urine. It's damaging the red blood cells, and the urine is bright red. You can't miss it. If you really look close, which in many cases I'll say we don't, but uh, the, the red blood cells actually are a chocolate brown color as well. Not so easy to pick up in the live animal, but once the animal dies, it's pretty obvious. But getting back to the sudden death, it's not a herd outbreak. It's one or two die today, one or two next week, partly because they don't all get to the toxic level on the same day. Unlike some other toxins, a pesticide where you have it in the feed or whatever, they're all affected immediately within one day. This drags on, so sometimes you overlook the fact that it's a herd problem. Copper, it's easy to do that. And so it's really critical to do this, uh, to do a post-mortem and so forth. And that's where diagnostically, uh, usually I get the samples from.
0: Yeah, the value of a post-mortem in those unexplained deaths, that's pretty important. So let's say a producer has... Uh, sorted out with his veter help of his veterinarian that they do have a deficiency in copper. What what can they do to kind of correct the correct the problem or get things back on track? Maybe it's not too bad yet, and they just don't want it to get worse. Uh, what's the strategy?
1: Uh, well, there's a number of approaches to that. Uh, first strategy is you want you got to determine partly through the uh, liver analysis or blood or feed analysis. Maybe a little more important here. Uh, is it a straight copper problem? Is it a copper molybdenum problem? And so forth. If it's a molybdenum problem, uh, you're caught a bit of a, between a rock and a hard place because you can't take the molybdenum out of the feed unless you buy feed from another source and so forth. But if it's just a straight copper deficiency, uh, you can provide uh, free choice minerals. And there's lots of those products on the market. You can use lick tubs or molasses lick tubs. And there's a number of approaches Uh, most of them work reasonably well depending on the circumstances and so forth. I find in some of these cases, uh, yeah, we tried that, and we tried this, it didn't work. It didn't work. Animals were still affected. They may have to go to the chelated minerals, the injectable minerals and so forth. Those definitely work very well. The downside is they're more expensive. Uh, The positive part is you know you've injected the animal with the free choice minerals. Some eat it and some don't. So there's a problem there. You've corrected in a few animals, so there, there's no perfect solution. Uh, the other problem with chelated minerals, which you have seen occasionally, is uh, it wasn't a copper problem that they were treating, and the, the bucket was 90% full, and by giving the chelated minerals, they pushed them into copper toxicity. So it's important to know the status of copper before you jump on the, uh, I'll say, the uh, chelated mineral bandwagon, but they do work really well in, in really stubborn cases, and I remember I've recommended a few of those on occasion and solved the problem very nicely, and so forth. But uh,
0: yeah, and and often I think it's good to you know work with your veterinarian to to figure out the status of the animals and then work with a nutritionist to sort of try to figure out what the best approach is because it it can be complex if it's it those, is definitely those complex. secondary and, deficiencies where it's molybdenum or sulfates and you may have to increase the copper beyond what. Normally, you'd put in a ration, and and, uh, you have to be a bit careful, like you said, of doing that. So so it's probably a good advice to work with a nutritionist and your veterinarian. I I think it's a team approach, and uh,
1: both play a slightly different role and so forth. And uh, the monitoring would be done by the veterinarian, and maybe the recommendations ultimately down the road after some analysis uh, from the nutritional expert. So it's a team approach for sure.
0: Good. Well, thank you, Dr. Blakely, for uh, being here with me. I'm probably going to ask you to do this again sometime, uh, <laughs> as you've got lots of expertise on on uh, different subjects that are important to the beef cattle industry. So, thank you uh, once again for doing this.
1: Could I make one other little comment oh, for here? Sure. Uh, um, just on uh, the copper problem is seasonal, so careful which time of year you look at it; you may get a different answer. Species differences. If you feed a cattle ration to sheep, you might kill them on a copper basis. There's species differences here. So what we said today is cattle, for right. sure. Uh, economic impact, big time. Don't underestimate that. It's subclinical. Uh, just a comment for producers uh, because of the seasonal nature. A good time to look at these animals is in the fall. I'll say a little bit before now, but say, October, November. If they are low, then I guarantee by spring they're going to be rock bottom. So now is the time to have an impact, make a difference. Now is the time to supplement. And the other comment I would make, just in final comment, is copper deficiency, poor doers, unthrifty, not gaining weight. It might be an animal welfare issue, and someone may accuse you of not looking after your animals properly, which may not be exactly the right assumption. So keep that in mind. There's a Another issue here besides the animal health, it's the animal welfare. And I've had a few, I'll say, legal disputes where this was involved. I'm not saying the producer was at fault, but it's just, it creeps up on you. And by the time you realize you have a problem, it's a big problem.
0: That's that's a very good point. I do remember one of uh, the herds that I looked at many years ago uh, was being accused of not feeding their cows and calves correctly because they were too thin coming to pasture. Uh, And it turned out when you looked at the ration, they were feeding them lots of energy and protein, but the copra was terribly deficient because of low or high sulfates in the herd. Um, So we've seen that before. Anyway, I think we'll uh, wrap it up there. Thank you for uh, being here, Dr. Blakely, and thanks uh, for your expertise. We'll have you back again for sure at some point in the future.
1: Thank you. Take care. Good time.
0: That's our show for this week. Thanks to everyone for listening. And thanks again to my guest, Dr. Barry Blakely. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email us at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. That's bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care until next time.